0: amen. If you have your Bible, flip over to the last chapter of the book of Romans. Let me say a few things about that. Today, we will finish a journey that started on October the 6th of 2013. Exactly three years and ten days ago, uh, we started a study of the book of Romans, an expository study, a verse-by-verse look at the at the Book of Romans, and in between special services and Mother's Day and and Easter and Father's Day and and guest preachers and the different revivals and things we've had, but interspersed in between all of that the last three years, we've had this steady flow of lessons from the Book of Romans. As a matter of fact, today is the 89th lesson, so we're going to end. We will conclude the Book of Romans today just shy of ninety lessons, and I have to be honest, it's it's bittersweet to me to conclude this journey. I've enjoyed it immensely. I've enjoyed the familiarity that I've developed with this great and powerful book, in in the Word of God. Over the last three years, I've I spent a lot of time delving into the mind of Paul, and I'm sure that in a future series, we're going to pick up Galatians or Ephesians or or First and Second Corinthians, and we'll go back into that that mindset of Paul, but. Uh, right now, it's time to change gears, and we're, we're going to change the pace a little bit. Uh, we'll finish this series today. We'll finish the book of Romans. And then next Sunday, I'm going to kick off a, a new short series. Uh, we've just come through a lengthy three-year study, and I want to launch another lengthy study at the beginning of the new year. So uh, we're going to do a study of the teachings of Jesus Christ. I don't know if it'll be six months, a year, two years, four years, six years, who knows? But we're going to start a study on the the teachings of Jesus Christ at the beginning of the year. In between now and then, uh, I'm going to start a series next Sunday that will focus on, and you're going to want to be here for this, going to focus on certain songs that the first century church sang as a part of their worship. And believe it or not, those songs are recorded in Scripture. And so they're written into the Word of God, these songs, the lyrics of these songs that they sung in the first century. We sing when we come to church. You know where we got that from? They sang when they came to church. And some of the things that they sang found their way into Scripture. And so there are specific, and I'll, I'll discuss this more next week, but there are specific passages of Scripture that are identifiable as lyrics of a song. And so we'll get into that. What we're going to see in that study is a very interesting and beneficial glimpse into the worship and the doctrine of the apostolic church. We are, we strive to be a modern day apostolic church, first century church. This is how they worshipped. This is what they worshipped. Amen. You'll find their doctrine there. We'll find a lot of good stuff there. So I'm probably going to do that. I'm thinking uh, five or six weeks. We'll see how that works out. Uh, there are several passages to choose from, and and uh, I'm, I'm just going to pick what I feel are the most beneficial of them, and, and we'll do that. After that, we may do a series that should get us through November. Uh, we may do a series uh, coming into December or through December, or coming up to Christmas. We'll just see. But um, today, we pick up with Romans chapter 16 and verse 21. If you stand with me for the reading of the Word, the last time that we'll read from the book of Romans in this series, Romans chapter 16, beginning with verse 21. Timothy, and I know it says Timotheus in your text, but he's speaking of Timothy. My work fellow, and Lucius and Jason, and Sosipater, my kinsmen, salute you. I, Tertius, who wrote this epistle, salute you and the Lord. Gaius, mine host, and the whole church saluteth you. Erastus, the chamberlain of the city, saluteth you. And Quartus, a brother. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. Now to him that has a power to establish you according to my gospel... And the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery, which was kept secret since the world began, but now is made manifest. And by the scriptures of the prophets, according to the commandments of the everlasting God, made known to all nations for the obedience of faith to God, only wise. Be glory through Jesus Christ forever. Amen. And those are the closing words of the book of Romans. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we love you. We thank you for your goodness and your mercy. Thank you for the opportunity to one more time open up the book of Romans and delve into the messages contained there. And, Lord, as we look at this concluding passage, it's got a a, a lot of different things in it. I'm asking God you'd help it somehow to speak into each and every heart and life that's here today, Lord, to give you glory and honor and praise. In Jesus' name, would you say amen? Amen. You may be seated. So, as we've said the last couple weeks, this letter is concluding. and, And in the conclusion of the letter, it looks more like a letter than it did at any other time. When we were reading the book of Romans, very often it seemed like we were reading a textbook or or, or a well-thought-out argument or or something of that nature. But now we we begin to see, as we've seen for the last several weeks, the, the pieces of the letter that look like a letter. So at this point in the letter, Paul's companions, those that are with him, are included in the letter, and they send their greetings to the Romans as well. And some have speculated that these individuals mentioned in this verse may have been traveling companions of Paul. They, they may have been going on the trip to Jerusalem with him, then to Spain by way of Rome. That may have been... Uh, their plans. Others have said that these were just people who were present with Paul in Corinth when he wrote this letter, and so they sent their salutations to the Romans as well. Either way, these are people who were work fellows or were companions of Paul's, and they're they're now given the opportunity in the book of Romans to greet the Roman church where this letter is going. The first name on the list is Timothy, and it is speaking of the same Timothy to whom uh, the books of 1st and 2nd Timothy are addressed he was Paul's fellow worker and Timothy is a very important character and a key character in the life of Paul Timothy joined Paul on his second missionary journey and has traveled with him and apparently by this time that it, Paul is writing this letter Timothy has been his traveling assistant for about 8 years so he's been with Tim, he's been with Paul for 8 years he's been quite literally been his right hand man. He's been the guy that, that, that worked hard for Paul, that, that secured the things that Paul needed, that traveled with him. And he was very close to Paul. As a matter of fact, in a different letter Uh, Paul praised Timothy as being his most unselfish and dependable worker. That's how I praise, amen. Timothy was the one man who always stood by him. Timothy was the one man who was always dependable. Timothy was the one man who was always hardworking. Timothy was the one man who was always unselfish. Boy, that's a tall order, amen. Amen. Timothy is mentioned in all of Paul's letters except Galatians, Ephesians, and Titus. And he's also mentioned in the book of Acts. So we see Timothy throughout the New Testament. He was with Paul in Corinth when he wrote this letter. And he would be making the journey with Paul to Jerusalem and then on to Spain by way of Rome. That was the plan. Now, we don't know a whole lot about the other three men mentioned here. They're Lucius, Jason, and Suscipiter. Uh, those names were fairly common names that are mentioned in other passages of Scripture. However, there's no discernible evidence that the same individuals are being referenced each time that these names are used in, in Scripture. As a matter of fact, that'd be what this is is kind of akin to writing a letter and telling the recipients, uh, you know, that Tom and John said hello. Well, if the the recipient of the letter knows who Tom and John are. But if you and I take that letter and we read it and we, we, we're we not the intended recipient, as a matter of fact, we're reading the letter 2,000 years later, we have absolutely no context to know who Tom and John are. Tom and John are very common names, amen? And so we don't know a whole lot about these three individuals except that we know that they were Paul's kinsmen, which is Paul's way of saying they were Fellow Jews—that's what he calls a fellow Jew. He calls them his kinsmen after the flesh. So that fact alone uh, gives us just a little bit of evidence. Some have argued that Lucas here is the Luke who wrote the New Testament. That is a—that uh, is the the shortened version of that name would be Luke, but. Uh, Uh, the Luke who wrote the gospel in the New Testament. I don't know if I said he wrote what he he wrote, but he wrote the gospel uh, in the New Testament. But that Luke that wrote the gospel was a Gentile. And that Luke that wrote the gospel would never have been referred to as Paul's kinsman. So we can immediately identify there's a different Luke at play here. And that's why I say it's not always easy to determine exactly who Paul is talking about with these different individual names. The next verse, verse 22, says, I, Tertius, who wrote this epistle, salute you in the Lord. So this is where you get your little conflict. You know, wait a minute. I thought Paul wrote this. Why is this guy named Tertius saying that he wrote this letter? This is where we get a rare glimpse into Paul's writing process. Paul didn't take a pen and paper and write his letters for himself. Paul typically dictated his letters to a scribe. A scribe was someone who this was their profession. This is what they did. And he would stand before the scribe and he would dictate to them and uh, they would write out what he said. Now, what is unique about this verse is that in most places in Scripture, the scribe remains anonymous. In every other letter that Paul wrote, the scribe is invisible. He's anonymous. But here, he pins his own greeting in the closing of the letter. Uh, The scribe himself says, I, Tertius, who wrote this epistle, salute you in the Lord. Now, writing through a scribe would be a lot like recording the words of a sermon and then And then somebody taking them and and typing them out and writing them out. You understand that speech is somewhat different than writing. In many ways, it's more dynamic. Whenever a speaker gets behind the pulpit and begins to speak, it, it's a little more fluid. Most preachers, most teachers have notes before them. They have some type of an outline of what they want to cover, but you're very familiar with the fact that every now and then I go off chasing a rabbit, and I, I jump from point to point, and I jump from topic to topic, and sometimes I'll stop in the middle of one thought and pursue another thought, and I'll, I'll run off here and there, and 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 and, and Sometimes you'll get so frustrated listening to a preacher who starts into a point and then gets distracted and never finishes the point. You ever been there? Yeah, you get I mean what he said is good. It blesses it's beneficial. But he never really finished the point that he started to make. Yeah, or, or the end of the story. How many of never heard the end of a story? You know, the preacher started a story, and then somewhere down through the story, he got to telling the meaning of the story, and he never concluded the story. You know, he leaves the poor guy stranded somewhere that, that you just knew a rescuer was going to come in, and, and if you heard the end of the story, it would happen. Well, that's kind of the way it is with Paul's writing the characteristics of Paul's letters are that they they tend to jump from thought to thought they tend to go from topic to topic sometimes in midstream Paul changes direction runs off over here and we've seen that as we've gone through the book of Romans sometimes it's well constructed and sometimes he just all of a sudden he starts uh, an argument with this imaginary uh, detractor and starts saying well you may say this but I say that right in the middle of what was a very logical thought process the reason it's that a way is because Paul's letters are more speech than they are writing. He's talking. He's he's carrying on a a conversation, if you will. He's preaching, if you will. What he's doing is much closer to preaching off the cuff with the inspiration of the Holy Ghost flowing through him than it is to uh, actually writing out a dissertation or thesis. I can just imagine Paul Pacing to and fro, speaking with eloquence, while this scribe scrambles to keep up, and how Paul's mind shifts gears and he he runs over here and then he runs over there. That doesn't mean though that that what he's saying is not inspired. He is what he's writing here is Holy Ghost inspired. It's God inspired. Every scripture was given by the breath of God or by the inspiration of God. And it's also not uh, possible that we might say, well, maybe the scribe messed up and wrote something different than what Paul said. That's not the case either because we know that every time this happened, Paul would take the letter and he would read it at the end and he would uh, make sure that this was what he said or this is what he intended uh, to write. As a matter of fact, before he places his final seal of approval on one of his letters, Paul almost always takes his own hand and writes at the end some little personal note from Himself, So that the recipients of the letter know that uh, Tertius may have written this, but these are the words of Paul. And we'll find that uh, today at the end of this chapter, Paul does the same thing. He takes pen in hand and he writes a, a greeting or a, a statement from himself in his own hand. Uh, as far as Tertius's greeting goes, Tertius salutes them in the Lord. Amen. That's kind of the same as saying for us in the name of Jesus. It is, it's a, it's a greeting in the Lord. Verse 23, Gaius, mine host, and of the whole church, saluteth you. Erastus, the chamberlain of the city, saluteth you. And Quartus, a brother. Now, I, I recognize that some of this could is kind of tedious. We're talking about people we don't have any idea who they are, but there's there's some interesting benefits in some of this, and we'll see that play out in this verse. This verse records greetings from some of the saints in Corinth who were there with Paul, and they wanted those greetings sent to the church in Rome. And This verse is one of the key verses that lets us know, first of all, where Paul was when he wrote the book of Romans, and also provides some historic validity to the book. First of all, Gaius was one of Paul's first converts in Corinth. He was one of the people whom Paul baptized himself personally. And so Gaius was an early convert of Paul in Corinth. And he was, Paul says, his host at the time that this letter was written. That puts this letter on location in Corinth, Paul is there at Gaius's house when this letter is transcribed or whenever it is dictated to the scribe and, and, and put down on paper. And, but Gaius is doing more than just providing housing for Paul. Uh, Gaius is also providing housing for at least a house church. Uh, we, the, the reference here is to the whole church. He says, Gaius, my host and the host of the whole church. Now, there, there are a couple of different meanings that could be ascribed to that. Uh, it could simply mean that he has a house church that meets in his house like others that we mentioned in the last couple of weeks. Or some think that the reference to the whole church might mean that Gaius had a house that was large enough that all of the various house churches that met in Corinth could gather collectively in his home from time to time. In other words, perhaps there was one, one time a month or one time a quarter where all the different house churches came together in one place, and it was Gaius' home where that was hosted. He hosted the whole church. Next, we're introduced to a man by the name of Erastus. Erastus was... The Chamberlain of the City. Chamberlain means treasurer, and this is an official title. The Chamberlain of the City is the treasurer of the city. That means that Erastus, a follower of Jesus Christ, a convert of Paul, was the treasurer of one of the largest cities of his day. Now, I've said it before, but these letters give us a glimpse into the first century church, and we discover in these lists of names uh, certain individuals that... uh, that are in every segment of society. This is a church that has managed to impact the whole of society, from the lowest of the low to the highest of the high. There are believers across the strata of Corinth, including some of the highest offices in the city. Now, to make this verse even more interesting, and like I said, this verse provides some historical evidence that this letter is genuine, archaeologists have discovered a paving block from 1st century Corinth, from this time period that this letter is written. And in that paving block is inscribed the name Erastus and an official title. Now, the title that is there in that paving block is something akin to director of public works. And it's a, it's another high office. Now, what does that tell us? First of all, it provides corroboration that there was a city official in Corinth named Erastus during the time period in which Paul wrote this letter. That provides some authenticity, some, some, uh, a second corroboration of the validity of the letter. Uh, and so the thing that we have to ask then is, well, the titles are different. Paul calls him the treasurer of the city. This paver stone calls him uh, the director of public Works And what we have to remember is that uh, we don't know the time period for either the letter or the paving stone. The paving stone, director of public works, is a lower position than treasurer of the city. And it's very possible that at the time that that paver stone was made, Erastus was the director of public works. But by the time that Paul wrote the letter to to the Romans that he had received a promotion, he had moved up and he was now the treasurer of the city. And so with that in mind, this little piece of archeological evidence helps us establish the validity. There really was a public servant. There really was an official in Corinth named Erastus. And Paul mentions him in his letter. And you can go to a museum somewhere in the world. I don't know where the paver stone is, but you can go to a museum. And if you can read Greek, you can read the, the inscription that is there that is genuine that comes from the very first century. So it establishes the validity of the letter. The next character that's mentioned here, is Quartus, who is referred to as a brother. Now, we're not entirely sure whose brother he is, but there is some speculation that he is the brother of the scribe who wrote this letter and that he may have been present when it's dictated. The reason why we think he may be the brother of the scribe who wrote this letter is that the name Tertius means third, and the name Quartus means fourth. How many families could there have been in the first century who named their kids? Kid one, kid two, kid three, and kid four. But this is kid four, and he's the brother of kid three, who we saw just a few verses ago. So as humorous as it is, it, it gives us a little bit of an idea, maybe, of who the identity of God felt like that sometimes. We call them thing one and thing two a time or two. Amen. That that gives us some idea of who uh, Cordis is. Verse 24 says, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. Now these words are the exact words that we ended with last week. Uh, the, the passage that we ended last week ended with the same words and we mentioned that uh, this is a pronouncement of a blessing. I talked about uh, speech and a speech that performs uh, the invoking of the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ was actually the, the actual performance of the invoking of that grace on the recipients of the letter. The blessing has more than just a verbal content to it. There's a spiritual transaction that takes place. But the blessing, as we mentioned last week, almost always appears at the very end of the letter. And what we saw last week was that this blessing got inserted, and then now the letter has continued. And so it, this, this is actually the last verse that the scribe writes. The next, the rest of this chapter is written in the hand of Paul. And so we find at the end now, the scribe has ended it once, and then these other guys say, hey, wait, wait, I want to be included. They've written out these. And so the scribe feels the necessity to end it again. And he ends it again with the same words, the same blessing that is, normally appears at the very end of a letter. And so he says that the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. What it, it's kind of like the preacher who says, I'm closing. And then 10 minutes later, he says, I'm closing. you know." And then ten, This is the last story. That's kind of the way this letter's going. you getting down to the point and, and, and the end, and Tertius says, all right, in closing, grace of the Lord be with you. And then they go on a little while, so he says it again, the grace of the Lord be with you. He writes his final amen, and then Paul says, wait a minute, let me pick up the pen. I want to write something else. And what follows in the final three verses is Paul's closing to the letter. After Tertius is finished, Paul has read the whole letter, and he's ready to send it off. But first he takes the pen in his own hand, and he adds a personal note at the end of the letter. You'll notice the change of the tone in the writing. This goes from a utilitary closing of a book to a grand anthem of praise and exaltation to God. It goes from simple, straightforward speech to very complex Pauline speech. And this is what Paul wrote in verse 25. Now, to him that is of the power to establish you, according to my gospel, and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery, which was kept secret since the world began. Verses 25, 26, and 27. If you look at them in your Bible, they're kind of lengthy. It is one sentence, one long sentence complex sentence, the kind of sentences that Paul is known for. It starts by identifying the one to whom the praise is directed. Now to him that has a power to establish you. That's the one that we're directing the praise to. It concludes by returning to that thought in verse 27 and further identifying that one as God. And so there's a beginning and that starts out into praise and there's a conclusion that wraps that up. But nestled in between those two statements are, are some very interesting statements that tie the beginning of the letter to the end of the letter and, and kind of pro- provide some completion for some of the thoughts that Paul had at the outset of this letter. So first, Paul notes God's power to establish The Roman believers. The word translated as established means to strengthen, to confirm, or establish upon a firm foundation. That word was first used in the book of Romans way back in chapter 1 and verse 11, where Paul said that he longed to see the Romans so that he could impart to them a spiritual gift so that they would be established. Now, Paul says at the end of the letter, That God has the power to use what he has written, the things he's written in this letter, which he describes as my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ. This is what Paul has written. And God now that Paul started saying, I wish I could see you, I want to impart to you a gift that will establish you. Now he says that God has the ability to take those things that that Paul has written, the preaching of Jesus Christ, and he can establish the Roman believers with that. So in the beginning, Paul desired to put the Roman church on a firm foundation of faith. And in the end, he says, God is able through this letter, through these words, through the preaching of Jesus Christ, to do just that, to establish the church in Rome, to put them on a firm foundation. So again, we we hear the echoes of the first chapter in these closing verses. Another, Another verse that we hear echoed here is Romans 1 and 16, which says that the power, the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. So here we see that That kind of echo of that, that Paul declares that the gospel of Jesus Christ, the preaching of Jesus Christ has the power to establish you. When your life is on shaky ground, it's the gospel of Jesus Christ that has the power to set you on a firm foundation. When you don't know where you're going to turn, you don't know what you're going to do, it's the gospel of Jesus Christ that has the power (coughs) to change your life. Amen? The rest of this verse introduces an interesting concept that scholars have been mulling over for years. The preaching of Jesus Christ and the establishing of the church through the power of God happens in accordance with the revelation of a mystery. It was a mystery that was kept secret from the beginning of the world. Now, to understand what we're talking about, you have to understand the word mystery as used in the New Testament refers to the secret thoughts or plans of God that are hidden from human reason until God reveals them. And God has to reveal them in order for mankind to understand them. In Paul's writings, a mystery is something that was once secret but is now being revealed. In other words, when Paul mentions a mystery, he is always referring to something that was not Previously known and understood, but has now been made known. First Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16 is a passage where he mentions a mystery. How many remember you most people can quote that verse and without controversy? Great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, and received up into glory. The mystery there is God manifest in the flesh. And that mystery was not readily understood before, but now it's testified to by those various witnesses that Paul lists. So that mystery is like the mystery here. As a matter of fact, it's the same mystery. The mystery here is not something that is unknowable. It's not something that can't be known, but rather something that is in the process of being made known to the reader of this letter. It's a mystery that is being declared. Verse 26 says, But now is made manifest, and by the scripture of the prophets, according to the commandment of the everlasting God, made known to all nations for the obedience of faith. So the mystery is now made manifest. It's now being made known to all nations. God has revealed the mystery of the ages to the world. How? By the scriptures of the prophets, according to the commandment of the everlasting God. So we get some insight in the mystery. This is a mystery that was declared in the words of the prophets, yet remained hidden the whole time to the whole world. It was right there in the words of the prophets, but it was hidden. It was declared in the scriptures by the prophets, but it was hidden from the whole world. How could that be? Well, that's easy. That's easy. The words of the prophets contain the very mystery of God, but it was hidden until it was revealed. In other words, once Jesus arrives on the scene, and once Jesus begins to preach and teach, once he begins to perform the mighty acts that establish his identity, the words of the prophets all of a sudden start making sense. Once he reaches that, once they reach that place in history where Jesus is on the scene, all of a sudden the things that were said by Isaiah, amen, there's a child that's going to be born. The government's going to be on his shoulders. His name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Those those words never made sense anywhere else in the history of humanity. His name shall be called Emmanuel, meaning God with us. And they've wondered at those words and the... It's been a great mystery that when the angel appears to Mary and says, uh, there is a child that's going to be conceived, uh, amen, by the Holy Ghost in your womb and that holy thing that is going to be born from you is the very Son of God uh, and his name shall be called Emmanuel, meaning God with us. All of a sudden, the prophecy becomes known. All of a sudden, the mystery is revealed. All of a sudden, it becomes obvious. We've talked a lot about the book of Revelation in the past couple of weeks. And there are a lot of things there that are just about as clear as mud. We, we really can't determine and, and discern and work it out until after the fact. And then after the fact, you can look back and go, man, it was there all along. I mean, it was just like it happened, just like the prophet said it would happen. That's the way it was whenever Jesus arrives on the scene. During the life and the ministry of Jesus, the words of the prophets are being fulfilled, and they're being shown to be true. And and he's born in the city of David in Bethlehem, and and shepherds came and, and declared his majesty, and angels sang of his glory, and all of it, the prophecy of Scripture was being fulfilled, even during his His life and ministry, the words of the prophets declared that he would die. He was going to be forsaken. He was going to be abandoned. He was going to be led like a sheep to the slaughter. He would have the chastisement of our peace laid upon him. Our punishment would be on his shoulders, and he would die a terrible death for us. And he would be buried, and he would rise again on the third day. But even his own disciples, even those closest to him, failed to recognize the meaning of those words until after the fact. Even when Jesus said to them, I'm going to have to go away, and I'm going to go to the cross, and they're going to kill me. He didn't say it in so many words. He said they're going to tear this temple down in three days. I'm going to raise it up again. And, And the disciples, they can't understand it. They can't get it. They don't grasp what's being said. After the fact, it snaps into focus. After the fact, the mystery is made known. When, when, when Jesus Christ rose from the grave, whenever he was victorious over death, hell, and the grave, and all of a sudden uh, they recognized the mystery has been revealed. The words of the prophets took on brand new meaning. All of a sudden they understood that what they'd been reading back in the book of Isaiah was really about Jesus Christ. It was there all of alone. It was there all the time. But all of a sudden, everywhere they looked in the Old Testament, they found Jesus. All of a sudden, everywhere they looked in the prophecies, there it was. Jesus Christ. If you'll remember uh, the, the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts Chapter, is it chapter 8 where Philip is transported by the Spirit to where the Ethiopian eunuch is? And so the Ethiopian eunuch is leaving Jerusalem, having come to try to worship. He's a proselyte and a worship the God of the Hebrews, and he's driving back home, and he's sitting in the back of his chariot, and he's reading from the Bible. Do you know where he's reading from? He's reading from the 53rd chapter of the book of Isaiah, the chapter that we quote so often on Easter, the the chastisement of our peace is upon him by by, our iniquities. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him by his stripes, we are healed. When you try to quote, you got to get in at the right point or you miss the cadence of the whole thing. The point is, he was reading those scriptures and wherever the Spirit transports Philip to where the eunuch is. And the eunuch says to Philip, he's, the Philip says, Do you understand what you're reading? He's not got, there is no New Testament. He's reading the Old Testament, he's reading Isaiah. And Philip says, do you understand what you're reading? And the eunuch says, no, I don't. It, this, he points at Isaiah 53 and he says, is this talking about a man or is this talking about someone else? What, what is this talking about? Is this talking about the prophet Isaiah or is it talking about some other man? Who is this about? And Philip points at Isaiah 53 and he says, that is about Jesus Christ. He didn't understand that before. He, didn't gra- he was just like the eunuch before, but now he understands. Now he sees it clearly. The mystery was there all along, but now it's made evident. Now he can see it in Scripture, and so now he's able to preach it to the eunuch who also sees Jesus Christ in Scripture. So the mystery in view here is the same mystery Paul mentions previously, the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh. It's the mystery that is revealed through the preaching of Jesus Christ. It is the mystery of redemption. How that God manifests himself in the flesh. How that God went to the cross. How that God paid the price for my sins. How that God died on that cross in some way and was buried in a borrowed tomb and rose again on the third day. The mystery is that God offers salvation to all of humanity no matter what they've done. No matter where they come from. No matter what their past is. No matter what their record is no matter what may be hanging over their head the mystery is that god loves every individual that god offers mercy to every individual the mystery is that god has made a way that all of us could come to the grace and the mercy of god through the cross of calvary amen the mystery is that he would take me back again and again and again And again, that having spurned his love once, he'd give me another chance. And having backed off on him again, he would turn his heart back to me. That over and over and over again, a way of mercy has been made. A way of salvation has been declared. That Jesus, through his death, burial, and resurrection, has purchased my salvation. And all that I have to do uh, is is respond to that gospel. Uh, uh, Repent of my sins. Uh, Be baptized in the name of Jesus. Jesus Christ for the remission of those sins, and I will be filled uh, with a gift of the Holy Ghost. Uh, in the words of Brother Bernard, this was God's plan from the beginning. This was the plan all along. The Old Testament prophets prophesied about it, and the New Testament preached it, and now it's declared plainly for every man to see. This is the mystery God has made away that you and I could come to Him. Amen? The purpose for the revelation of the mystery to all nations, according to Paul, is for the obedience of faith, is to produce the obedience of faith. The key phrase is obedience of the faith. And it's repeated also from, like, like the previous passage, it's repeated from the beginning of the letter, back in the fifth verse of the first chapter. Paul said that his ministry as an apostle was given for this reason, to produce the obedience of faith among all nations for the glory of the name of Jesus. Now, I I won't belabor the point here because I've made it multiple times already. But the phrase obedience of faith describes the kind of faith that is necessary for salvation. The faith that saves you is not merely mental assent or intellectual acceptance or, or verbal confession. The faith that saves you is a faith that is obedient. If you believe that Jesus came, if you believe that he died for your sins, if you believe that he was buried in a bald tomb and raised again on the third day, then you will obey the gospel message. You will repent of your sins. You'll be baptized in his name, and he will fill you with the gift of the Holy Ghost. The faith that grasps salvation is a faith that acts. It's a faith that obeys. Amen? And that brings us to the final verse of Romans. To God only wise... Be glory through Jesus Christ forever. Amen. So now we return to the theme introduced in the opening phrase of this sentence. Glory to God through Jesus Christ forever. Paul recognizes the one God as emphasized by the word only. He's unique. He's alone. There is only one God. There's none like him. And his matchless wisdom. And that wisdom is made manifest in the revelation of the great mystery of the ages. Jesus Christ. Indeed, Paul would write elsewhere in Scripture that we beheld the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. We see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That's the mystery of the ages. And we will for all of eternity, forever and ever, we will see the glory of God in Jesus Christ. And he ends with the word Amen. Amen is not an English word. It's a Greek word. It's a transliteration of a Greek word. The word literally means let it be. And so it was the traditional ending. It expresses the finality of the last word. So Paul, after affixing that last statement with his own hand, concludes the letter with that word, Amen. And with that final Amen... We bring the book of Romans to its conclusion. I know it hasn't been the most moving of messages today. This is where we are. This is the conclusion of the book. And I almost don't know what to say next. It's been a long journey. It's been a wonderful journey. It's been a very uh, interesting study. And it has blessed, I know it's blessed my heart abundantly. But I believe that we should end this journey the same way that Paul did. I believe we should take just a moment and recognize the two salient points that come across through his handwritten closing. First of all, the preaching of Jesus Christ has the power to save you, to strengthen you, and to establish you. That drives home the importance of going to church. When you're weak, you need to be strengthened. And it is the preaching of Jesus Christ that strengthens you. Whenever you are on unsteady ground. You need to be established, and it is the preaching of Jesus Christ that establishes you. Whenever you find yourself in need of the grace of God, you need that, that salvation, that grace, and that mercy. It is the preaching of Jesus Christ that brings you to that place. It's never I, I, the, the, the words that break a pastor's heart, or, well, pastor, I've just got too many problems, but I get it figured out. I'll come to church. No, 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 no. It's the preaching of jesus christ that figures it out it's the preaching of jesus christ that sets things right it's the preaching of jesus christ that changes you don't you don't say wait a minute i messed up i need not to go to church because church is just for perfect people no it is the preaching of jesus christ that perfects you you come to church because you need the preaching of jesus christ amen The second key to Paul's closing was to establish that the goal of all Christian preaching is to bring the hearer to heartfelt obedience, the obedience that springs from faith in Jesus Christ. In other words, the preaching of the gospel is about more than just a statement of faith. It's about more than just a mental acceptance of what's been said. It is supposed to compel you to action. It's supposed to spur you to obedience. It's supposed to spur you to step up and grasp the word of God and and act upon it. And scholars believe that Paul has intentionally bracketed the book of Romans with this powerful phrase, the obedience of faith. He wants to make sure that his readers understand that faith goes deeper than just something that you do in your heart and your mind. Faith is something that you act out, that you live out. It's something that is expressed in obedience. So while preaching strengthens you and establishes you and saves you, the kind of preaching that does that is the preaching that moves you. It's preaching that causes you to react, that causes you to act in obedience to the Word of God. It's the kind of preaching that brings you to an altar, causes you to bend your knees, bow your head, and pour out your heart to a loving God. It's the kind of preaching that causes you to lift your hands and with tears streaming down your face, turn your heart towards heaven and surrender your life to Him. That's the kind of preaching that this saves you. Why don't you stand with me? I know that it has been a little different this morning. A matter of fact, it's, you know, I, I, nobody's going to write home and say, well, that was the best sermon I ever heard in my life. That's okay. I didn't write it. Paul did. But this this one thing I know, it would be appropriate. Brother, Brother Larry, grab Brother Ryan. It would be appropriate this morning if we could just close out this study through the book of Romans by gathering in the altar together, and let's just worship the Lord for a few moments there. I feel the presence of God, and I understand that I haven't preached conviction, and I haven't haven't called you to an altar of repentance, and, and I haven't done some of the things that I, but I have preached the gospel of Jesus Christ, and there is that revelation, that mystery, that He is here, and that He came to save, and He came to to touch and he came to heal and he came to bless and he came to pour out of his spirit and and I wonder if for the next few moments as uh, brother Ryan's going to come in just a minute if we could just take a moment and let's worship the Lord together would you just lift your voice to him Lord Jesus we thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your mercy and your grace. We thank you, Lord, for that great love of God that you've shown in our lives. And I'm asking, Lord, that this morning at the end of what would seem maybe to be a little unorthodox of a Sunday morning sermon, Lord, as we've wrapped up the book of Romans, I'm asking, God, that you'd allow your grace and your mercy just to move through this house, Lord. That you'd allow the Word of God to speak to us, Lord, for it is that Word that establishes us. It is that Word that strengthens. Us, it is that word that saves us, and so I'm asking uh, in the name of Jesus Christ, Lord, that You let the word do what the word does, Lord. Let it touch us today, Lord. That there are those under the sound of my voice uh, that are weak in their faith, Lord. Let them be strengthened uh, and established uh, by the word of God. There are those under the sound of my voice, uh, Amen, that are in need of the grace and the mercy of God. I'm asking, Lord, You let that mercy flow through the preaching of Jesus. Christ christ Uh, amen we have declared you lord uh, you're holy you're righteous you are mighty to save uh, amen and we worship you for who you are and we're asking in the next few moments lord you just let your spirit move through this place in jesus name amen brother ryan i want you to get some kind of congregational something that's easy for folks to sing and i want you just to if you don't mind just stand to your feet stand to your hands and lift your feet in the air